If you would, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. It's been a real privilege to study the book of Romans with you, to hear Pastor Tim work through this gospel. Our theme comes from the first chapter, verses 16 and 17. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. This is a book that was written to believers, and the first four chapters really tease out the significance of where we were prior to believing and what we are after we believe. And chapter five, really, where we're going to be looking today, is a starting point of a section of the scripture that gives us the answer, so what? So at the end of chapter four, we studied the past three weeks, where we're talking about Abraham, we're talking about uh, being as good as dead, yet not failing in his faith. And because of his faith, righteousness was reckoned to him. And not just because of him, but also for yours and my account. And so that through Christ's death, we have the wrath of God taken from us, but through his resurrection, we have been justified. If you saw in your program today, we're going to be talking about three results of that justification. And really, just as a sidebar, these three results of being justified by faith, by being declared righteous in God's sight, are three virtues that our entire world seeks after. Now, not the way that the Bible presents them, but those three virtues, peace, hope, love. Right? So if you have an outline, it's really easy. I gave it to you the entire time. Please don't check out, though. Okay? Peace, hope, love. The three results of being justified by faith. And I say that our entire world kind of seeks after this insofar as this. So Mahatma Gandhi in India, passively resisting, was for what? Peace, hope, love, right? Nelson Mandela, rebelling against South African apartheid, championing what? Peace, hope, love. 1960s Woodstock, John Lennon. Championing what? Peace, hope, love. Those of you who are around in the 70s, you know, up with people. Remember the campus movement there? What? Peace, hope, love. 1980s, we are the world. Peace, hope, love. All right, those of you who were born more recently, think of Christmas time. <laughs> this is what Christmas time has become, right? Peace, hope, love. Yet, those who've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ are promised in this passage peace, hope, and love. Today we're going to see how a Christian who's been justified by faith has these virtues, and we'll see how the Bible clarifies exactly what each of these three virtues look like or, in some cases, don't look like. So we're going to be looking through verses 1 through 11. I want to read these verses. And actually, what we're going to do today is it's going to be kind of like a, a bookshelf with bookends. Because what Paul does in this passage, Paul actually starts and ends with peace. And then, closer to the middle, talks about hope. And right in the middle, he talks about love. Okay, so it's, it's almost like a yo-yo, okay? So you start with peace, string goes out, hope, 
String goes out the farthest, love. But as the string comes back in, hope, and then peace. So follow along with me, and we'll tease this out. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Okay, there's peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in the hope, okay, here's hope, in the glory of God. Not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love, love of God, there you go, does not disappoint. I'm sorry, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might, would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, and we start to go back to hope here, we shall be saved from the wrath of God for him, through him. For if we were enemies, if while we were enemies we're reconciled to God through the death of his son, here's hope again, much more, having been reconciled, there's peace. We shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Before we go any further, let's pray. God, your word is living and active. It's sharper than any sword. It meets us where we are. We need the Holy Spirit to accompany your word, to clarify the way we look at it. As believers, Lord, if there are unbelievers here, we need the Holy Spirit to remove the scales from their eyes, to rightly understand the implications of the word, and to welcome it. Would you do just that as we study your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So first, those who've been justified by faith have peace with God. Now, Pastor Tim spent several weeks talking about faith and how faith is badly misunderstood and how faith can be interpreted a lot of different ways, most often than not personally. What is your faith? What is your faith? Have faith. It's just kind of like this generic sentence or statement. Peace is just like that. In fact, faith, peace, hope, Love, all of them, have to be correctly defined. Peace in this passage is not simply slowing down. It's not calming your mind, decluttering your existence. It's not watching young goat videos, baby goat videos, just kind of prance around. Baby goats are the cutest little things in the world. They, they, they just, there's just something right with the world to watch them. My wife showed me the other day, and I was like, that is the cutest thing ever. It's peaceful. It's just right. That's not the peace that's being talked about here. Okay? It is not an ideal state of freedom. Give peace a chance. Give peace a chance. It's not this statement of ideal circumstances within conflicting countries or boundaries. This is not a subjective or feeling-based peace. This isn't just simply peace of circumstance. All of a sudden, it's not that. And can I also say that it's not the peace that's spoken of in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 6 and 7, where we're told, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication make your requests be made known unto God. And the peace 
of God shall rule your hearts. That's true. The peace of God will rule the believer's heart, but the peace of God cannot come without the peace with God. That's what's being described here in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's huge. Why? Because, first of all, peace with God means that you are no longer in conflict with God. To have peace with God means that you are no longer in conflict. And you might say, wait a second. I was in conflict? Well, at this point, go back and listen to all the sermons of Pastor Tim from Romans 1 through 4. And it will be quite clear up to this point that you've seen that an unbeliever in their sin is in conflict with God. Yet when they are justified by faith, they are made at peace with him. But more than just no longer being in conflict with God, this peace is defined as a state of well-being. Okay, so in Hebrew, you're all familiar with the word shalom, right? Shalom is more than just, I'm not in conflict with you. If someone would, were to greet you with that, this Old Testament saints greeted one another with this word shalom. It would be more than just, okay, so right now, I'm not not liking you. It would actually be more of a statement of, there is well-being. There are good tidings between us. There is a good standing between one another. In this context, it's associated with a peace that comes having the right relationship with Jesus Christ. Look, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does this look like practically? Peace with God. Well, first of all, in verse 2, through whom we have obtained an introduction by faith. That word introduction sounds like it's being introduced, like it's new. And that's true. If you have a different translation, the word you might have there in that verse is access. So, through whom we also have obtained access by faith into this grace. So, through Christ, peace with God means that we actually have access into being justified. We have access to righteousness. And because of our justification, we have peace with God. Now, the second thing that this looks like, and I told you that in this passage as we're going through it, it's kind of bookended. So we need to look at the very end of this passage to also see what peace looks like, peace with God. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were, and there's a word that occurs here three times, reconciled. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 11, and not only this, we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, what? The reconciliation. So what does peace with God look like? First of all, it looks like access to justification, that's positional, but we also have another positional reality, reconciliation. Now, the Bible gives a lot of examples of relationships between people that aren't reconciled. But every once in a while, it gives very clear examples of human relationships that involve reconciliation. I think the most obvious one is the prodigal son, right? You remember the story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, Son goes to his father, says, I want my inheritance. That's kind of like saying, it would be better if you were dead so I could have all your stuff. And so the father says, okay, here's my stuff. And he goes. And he squanders it. Now, again, to the father, 
The son has said, basically, it's better off if you're dead. Took his inheritance, squanders it, comes to his senses, and does what? Comes back to the father. The father does what? Runs out to him with open arms. They are reconciled. There was division between the two. But the problem wasn't with the father, was it? The problem was exclusively the son. And when we read about reconciliation in Romans chapter 5, when we talk about being at peace with God, this is a one-sided reconciliation. This is unlike human reconciliation, where if you are in conflict with someone, there's usually an airing of, you know, just kind of clear the air. Let's, let's kind of, you know, speak our grievances and meet somewhere in the middle. And so we'll reconcile. We were, you know, fighting, but now we reconcile. That's not the way that this works. And if I can put it this way, this isn't the peace that the world is looking for when it says give peace a chance or when it proclaims peace. This is a peace that God initiates. It's on his terms, and it's a reconciliation that requires no change from him at all. We're the ones that change. We're the ones that created the war. And we're the ones that need to become like him on his terms. This reconciliation, no compromise, God defines the terms of us being at peace with him. I mentioned Christmas before because at Christmas time, Luke 2.14 is such a popular verse, right? And in the King James, we can understand, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace Goodwill toward men. That makes you feel warm and fuzzy. But you look at the language. In fact, if you have a, a, a more modern translation, uh, it says, peace among men with whom he is pleased. That really sharpens our focus to understanding what peace is, doesn't it? It's more than just this generic good feeling. It's peace among men with whom he is pleased. How do those men be pleased? How can those men be pleasing? Because they are righteous in God's sight. That's a big deal. So peace with God is given to those who are justified in Christ. Second result, hope. Those who are justified by righteousness or justified by faith have hope. Now, just as we said what peace isn't, let's talk about what hope isn't. Hope isn't simply wishing that something will be true. Okay, so as a Clevelander, I hope the Browns will have a winning record. Okay, I, I wish that to be true. Hope isn't simply having a hope for a better tomorrow. We're going to provide hope to those so they can have a better tomorrow. It's not what this is talking about. Hope isn't even the sense of an expectation that's likely to be true. Okay, so barring a sports metaphor again, I hope the Cavs make it to the finals, right? There's a bit more confidence than what we would have in our football team. It's a confidence, but it's still a possibility that it might not take place. And can I tell you, hope in this passage isn't even the confidence that I can prove by my action. A lot of times I've heard you know, someone illustrate hope or, or faith by, by getting in and sitting down on a seat. Say, well, I have faith in the chair. 
So I'm going to prove the faith or the hope that I have in the chair by sitting down. Aha, see, it holds me. If I really didn't have hope or faith in the chair, I wouldn't sit in it. But because I believe in it, I'm going to sit in it. Okay? That's not even what this is talking about. In verse 2, it says, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 5, it says, hope does not disappoint. This hope is more than just wishful thinking. This is absolute confidence and certainty. So as you read this word hope in this passage, please don't think that there's a potential for it not to be realized. It's going to happen. It is absolute certainty. So let's, let's use an illustration. All right, let's say a fire alarm goes off in this room, and the room fills in with smoke. And obviously, if the room fills up with smoke, we shouldn't stay here. It's not safe. So where do we go? We go outside, right? We go outside not because we hope there isn't fire outside. It's because we know there's not fire outside. We leave the room because when we stay here, we die. We go outside fully expecting to, to be able to breathe and to live. There's no doubt in our mind, bad in here, good out there, go. Right? So the alarms go off. We have a nice pattern. Our safety and security team, they pattern it out for us. Right? That's pretty much what this is describing. It's an absolute certainty. And in fact, we know it's a certainty because of the word that's used here in this passage three different times. Verse 3, not only this, but we exalt. Your translation might say glory. In the original language, this word just simply means boasting or bragging. So if we were to read that word into the passage, we boast. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in our tribulations. Verse 11, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Someone's going to boast in something, they're pretty confident. They're certain what they're boasting about is in fact true. That is the hope given to the one justified by faith. Now, what is his hope actually in? First thing, hope in, of the glory of God, boasting in future salvation. This really is assurance and security. I know that I will see God and be with him in glory. Remember the whole bookends thing? There's hope towards the end of this passage too. Look in verse 10. For if while we are enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Jesus is alive. That's why in part, we worship on, when, on Sundays. It's Resurrection Day. Not just Easter. Every Sunday, we celebrate Jesus and his resurrection. Jesus is alive. You will be saved in his life. Verse 11. I'm sorry, back one. Verse 9. Much more than how, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This is future salvation from a coming wrath that before I was saved, I was under. That was me. I was under that wrath. I'm not under it anymore. I can go to bed with absolute certainty, resting my head on the pillow, knowing that if Jesus were to come, I would be with him. Knowing that if I didn't wake up the next morning, I would be with him. 
knowing that whatever the future may hold, I will be with him. This is assurance. This is security. You know what else it is? It's hope in present day circumstances. Because here's the deal. It's one thing to say, yes, it's going to be better for Christians, but right now my life is awful. See, what Paul did was he took that and kind of took it right by the neck and said, I'm going to address that because that's a legitimate frame of reference. The hope that's the future and the misery that's the now for some. Look at verse 3. And not only this, but we also, what? Boast in our tribulations, difficulties. Some commentators see the tribulations exclusively as the, the byproduct of being a Christian. So they're going through tribulations because they're saved. And whatever difficulties they're experiencing, maybe criticism, maybe actually first physical persecution, that's what's coming. Other commentators look at it and say, it's just difficulties in general. I mean, life's hard. And ultimately, every difficulty comes at the hands or the consequence of sin. And really, the way I see this here as it's playing out is both and. That we can boast, we can have confidence in present day difficulties because even normal difficulties are, are made somewhat more difficult because of the fact that we're Christians. Okay, so my wife and I just um, graduated, if I can put it this way, from wiping phase. It's the wiping season of life where our kids, it feels like, all we're doing is wiping. We're wiping counters. We're wiping toys. We're wiping noses. We're wiping hands. We're wiping other spaces. And that's all we're doing with our kids. Well, hey, I get to work. I get to come and minister here at church. But my wife's at home. And so the difficulties of wanting to have another level of ministry, maybe even a level of ministry prior to that, but now having kids and being tied down or, or whatever, uh, what's the significance of me wiping? Seriously, what, what do I do? And, and I could also say towards the end of our lives, when our minds still work but our bodies don't, you know, think of the video of Joanne Moore that we watched you know, last week. Someone who sits all day. And the mind is still very much there. Knowing that future hope, but having the present reality of not being able to do what you want to do or what you used to be able to do. And then anything and everything else in between from a difficulty standpoint. We have hope. We have a confident expectation that while it seems like God is doing nothing, God is doing something. What is he doing? Well, let's look. We have tribulations that bring about, first of all, perseverance, verse 4. And second of all, proven character. Now, perseverance and proven character, those are those character traits that, frankly, everybody wants but nobody wants. Everybody wants them because, yeah, I, I would like to think I would persevere through difficulties. Yes, I would have proven character that if I were tried, come out on the other side and that Christ-likeness would, would ultimately define who I am. But the fact of the matter is, is that in order to have perseverance and proven character, you have to have the difficulties that are the means to those things. Perseverance, endurance, proven character, seeing God test you with the goal of proving who you really are. And then at the end of that is what? Hope. 
So what's at the beginning is at the end. We're boasting in hope for future, yes, for present, yes, because even the present difficulties result in a stronger confidence of what God is doing. This is unlike the world's hope. Hope for a better tomorrow often just simply means let's change the circumstances and make them better. It's rough now, but it's going to get better here on this planet. What if it doesn't? What if the difficulty doesn't change? Yes, you have that future hope. Yes, we have that coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we have the promise and the hope of heaven. Yes, we have the promise of the resurrection. And yes, we're supposed to receive comfort, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. But what if the circumstance, the difficulty, doesn't change? What is God doing? This is not a hope that the world champions. But this is a hope, this is a confidence that while the outside looks in and says, I don't know how you do that. We say, we do, because we have been justified by faith. We have Christ's righteousness. He has changed us. Third thing, I hope, by the way, as we're going along, I hope that you are seeing the radical difference between peace and hope. The 21st century understanding of peace and hope and a biblical understanding. Not to say that one is dated and the other isn't, but to understand that there is a there's a, a chasm of a difference between the two. Peace and hope. And now even more so, love. Love. We see this in verse 5. And the hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. We have peace with God. We have hope ultimately in salvation. And we have love in Christ now as we did with the others. Let's say what this isn't. Love isn't a warm and fuzzy feeling. Okay? That's not what this love is being talked about. This isn't falling in love. This isn't like, well, you know, she caught my eye. My wife caught my eye. I really liked her. She didn't care. And I wrote her note or whatever, and then we just kind of fell in love. That's not what it's being talked about. Okay? Love also isn't, Finding the good in someone and, and, and latching on to it. Kind of like a, a rescue date. You know, this rescue relationship where he's really a good guy. You know, I, I know there's some good in him and so I'm going to latch on to him. And if I'm there, I'm going to love him into being a good person. That's not what this is talking about either. This is a love unlike any human love. And I'll show it to you in three ways. First of all, it's a love that we didn't initiate. Verse 6. And actually, in this passage, the word while, it's not a significant word, but it's an important word. While. It talks about something that was true, yet God did something almost unbelievable. In fact, humanly, it is impossible. While, first of all, we were helpless. I said that this is a love that we didn't initiate. Why? We couldn't initiate it. The unbeliever doesn't initiate a love to God. The unbeliever is helpless. Second of all, it was a love that we didn't deserve. 
It was a love that we didn't deserve. Look at verse 6. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. Look at the end of verse 8. While we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't initiate the love. We didn't deserve the love. And can I put it this way? We didn't even want the love. How do you know that? Well, look at verse 10. For if while we were what? Enemies. Enemies. The Bible describes us, pre-salvation us, in four ways. Helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies. Enemies don't want to love their enemy. All right. This is a love unlike human love. And let me use an illustration to point this out. So, past year or so, I've been volunteering with a group. It's, uh, it's called Be the Match. And what we do, this group, uh, we go to college campuses and we ask people if they would be willing to be put on a, uh, a database for uh, being a bone marrow transplant match. So what we do, we set up a little booth in these college campuses, and uh, we ask students that walk by, and we say, hey, do you want to save a life? Like, oh, save a life, oh yeah. So basically they take a cotton swab, they swab the inside of their cheek, they put it in this little booklet, and then we send it off, and their DNA, you know, the little cells that are on that cotton swab, it's put into a database. And people who end up getting certain bloodborne cancers, uh, like leukemia, they often are treated, and those of you who are in the medical community, I apologize if I don't get completely right, um, they're treated with bone marrow transplants. And in order to have a bone marrow transplant, you have to have a match. So, you know, I went ahead and my, my, my name's on the list there, and, and other students, they, you can be put on the list from 18 to 44. So college campuses is a great time for them to, to sign up for something like this. Because you can stay on this database all the way up to age 60. It's really cool. So I'm 39. I very well could get a phone call in the next 21 years from someone saying, hey, guess what? You're a bone marrow match for so-and-so. I'd say, that's great. And what they do is they pay the expenses for the match to come and donate their bone marrow and hopefully treat this person of their bone cancer, or leukemia, blood cancer. Okay? Now, who doesn't want to save a life? Well, let's say in that phone call, hey, we found that you're a match. Great. Well, just so you know, we want to tell you a few things. This person that you're a match for, they're actually incarcerated. Oh, okay. Well, it's all right. You know, people make mistakes. I want you to know, this person's on the sex offender list. Oh. Yeah, with children. Oh. Now, just so they know, you're welcome to decline whether or not you'd like to donate. I'll be honest with you. I want to save a life. I don't know if I want to save that life. And here's where this illustration breaks down. Because it's not a totally accurate illustration of what Jesus is doing in verses 6 through 8. Here's why. Because first of all, while we were yet sinners, there wasn't just one sicko. There's a whole bunch of sickos that he would donate for. Not only that, but he was doing more than just donating bone marrow. 
He was giving his life for them, for me. And not only that, do you want to save a life? Here's a person, there's a match, but oh, by the way, they really don't want your donation. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. This wasn't a love that Jesus somehow saw the attractiveness of the individual and thought, yep, they're worth dying for. This is fundamentally different than the love, 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 all you need is love that our world sings ballads about. Fundamentally different. Yet, Jesus did this for you and for me. This room is chock full of former enemies. This room is chock full of those who were unlovely, yet, through justification by faith, having righteousness placed upon their account, they now, as verse, verse uh, 5 says, they now have the love of God poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So those who are justified by faith, we have the greatest peace of all, peace with God. Those who, are those who have hope have the greatest hope of all, the hope of salvation. Those who have the love of Christ have the greatest love of all. All other notions of peace, hope, and love will be short-lived and at best, most likely disappointing. And in God's eyes, they won't be sufficient. He requires that peace, hope, and love be defined on his terms and accepted only one way. I want us to, I, I want us to leave with two points of application. Okay? One is for believers and one is for those who may not be in Christ, unbelievers. As we look through Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, I want us to notice how many times the certain pronoun we or us is used. Verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Verse 2, through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations. Verse 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved. For if while we were enemies, you get the point. What's the point? All of these things belong to other believers as, in addition to you. That reconciliation that's talked about at there at the end between you and God, even though you were a former enemy, guess what? The other believers in this room have experienced that as well. Don't you think that ought to impact the way that we live with them? The way that we talk with them? And let's sharpen this application a little bit more. Because the extent to which God gives these benefits to you is no different than to other believers. All believers have received the love of Christ. All believers have hope and salvation and peace and reconciliation with God. Now, this reconciliation in theory, it's real, 
but it must overflow into how we treat each other, in particular how we respond to one another. Being reconciled with God should protect us from being critical. That person, whatever they're doing, if they're a believer, guess what? They've been reconciled to God. So, men and women, how do you hear your spouse and children when they talk to you? Parents, how do you hear your children when they question you? Is it critical? How do they hear you? A recent study taken among business leaders showed that to maintain productivity from your employees, you should give four compliments for every one criticism. That's just to maintain productivity. To actually produce change in the workplace, the study says you should give seven compliments for every one criticism. Do our homes look like that? And I'm the first one that has my toes mashed. If that person stands reconciled before God, why is it that I am so threatened and I act so threatened by them? The Christian who understands the extent of his or her being reconciled will be gracious to others because he or she knows the loving kindness shown to them. Right? We can take, but man, is it hard to give. And it's an underlying fundamental reality that changes the way that we live, especially among believers. And so the byproduct is unity. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Teen, do you show this reality of being reconciled in the way that you talk to your parents? And we're kind of focusing in on the home. We could go broader to our church. But teen... Are you thinking of an individual, when they talk to you, when it seems like they're on your case, do you think of them as someone who was an enemy of God at one time, but God in his love actually reconciled? And if God can reconcile them, and oh, by the way, if God can reconcile you and him, certainly the two of you can get along and can talk to each other civilly and actually build each other up more than just the absence of conflict. And I said the second application here was to those who don't know Christ. And in a room this size, there's a good possibility that there are some that may not know Christ. This was a letter written by Paul to the Roman church. Now, have you ever received a letter that was in your mailbox but wasn't addressed to you? You know, get that? Or maybe a text message. I got this text. Uh, this is not to me. So you text back and say, ah, do you have the right number? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. And I want to say this graciously and gently. But if you don't know Christ, then these results of justification do not apply to you. Peace, hope, love. They don't. If you have not trusted in Christ alone by faith alone, then you cannot say that you have peace with God, that you have hope of salvation or love in Christ. The Bible says that you've been approaching life as your own boss. And your pursuit of peace, hope, and love are more about your own glory than about God's. But that's not where God leaves you. God doesn't simply send a letter with an invitation and then say, oh, <laughs> party's not for you. 
This is the invitation. God wants you to see you the way He sees you. And at first glance, that's not the peace, hope, and love that we might be familiar with. But this is the peace that's offered with God that you need, that's foundational. This is the hope for future salvation. And this is the love that recognizes that you really, in and of your own self, don't deserve. And so that's why God has created you to give him glory. That's why Jesus Christ gave himself for you. So that you would recognize your position as a sinner. The worst of the sinners. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And I'm the worst. And then confess that sin. Say, God, I need you. I don't have a righteousness of my own. I need yours. Save me from my sin. That offer is available to you. Can I ask you a favor? If you don't know Christ, if you've never turned from your sin and placed your faith in Christ, can I ask you a question? The person that invited you here or the person that you're with, person that knows Christ, could you talk to them? At some point, preferably in the next 24 hours, I don't mean to be crass about this, but strike while the iron's hot. The Lord is convicting you. Act upon that. The gospel is clear. The results of justification are clear. Could you do me a favor as a congregation? Can you take out your red hymnals? Inside your red hymn books, there's going to be a, a hymn that we're going to close with in just a moment. Because good doctrine always helps us worship. Ben's going to come and lead this hymn in just a moment. It says, let us love and sing and wonder. We've been singing this for the past oh, month and a half. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. It's an insert, probably folded in half. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He's quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He who has washed us with his blood has brought us near to God. Let us love the Lord who bought us, pitied us when enemies. He called us by his grace and taught us. He gave us ears and gave us eyes. He who washed us with his blood presents our souls to God. Let us sing, though fierce temptations threaten hard to bear us down. For the Lord, our strong salvation, here's the hope, holds in view the conqueror's crown. In verse 4, let us wonder grace and justice join in point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who's washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. And then verse 5, uh, anthem of worship. Let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted him before us, and now their praises fill the sky. You washed us with your blood. You are worthy, Lamb of God. Let's pray.